0: In my previous episode, I spoke about an incident that happened in 2008, and I had said that it was that particular incident that played a huge part in me getting restraining orders against my parents. I wanted to take time to talk about my restraining orders and everything that led up to why I needed to get them, and also everything after. I left on September 24th of 2009. I went to a battered women's shelter and I did not look back. Shortly after I was there, my parents had found out that I was not going to be coming home and that they would no longer be able to have contact with me or my children because I was not going to allow it. I began to receive emails from my father, threatening emails that I still have today. He said things like he would take me out, that he would always be watching, and things of that nature, just to try to scare me. I called the police and spoke with an officer, and he explained that it was not a crime. That in order for it to be a threat, that I would have to be in imminent danger. And an email with just a few words did not fit that criteria. So he suggested that I apply for a restraining order. This way, any contact that came from them would then be illegal and they would be able to arrest them no matter what was said. So I did. I went down to the courthouse and I filled out the petition and I was told to come back later and the judge would have given me his decision. One of three things would happen. Either I would be granted a temporary restraining order with a court date in two weeks, I would be denied the temporary and still have a court date, or I would just be denied outright. I had no idea what to expect, and to be honest, I really thought I was going to be denied because every time I had tried to talk to anyone about anything, nobody ever believed me. ...and they always believed my parents. I had to write down my reasons for believing that I needed one... ...and I had to express to the judge everything... ...as to why I feared for my life if contact was allowed between my parents and I. It was not an easy task. I tried to include everything that I possibly could, but... ...I didn't know how far back to go. I didn't know how in-depth to go... I didn't know a lot of things. Luckily, there were advocates from the local domestic violence organization that were there and able to assist me. So I wrote about the night that I described in my last episode. I wrote about the head injury, about the fight, the assaults, all of it. I wrote about the constant verbal abuse and constant threatening emails. I just wrote and wrote and wrote... Everything that I could possibly think of, I wrote about it and I filled up page after page after page. It actually felt good to get all of it out and to finally admit a lot of things that had happened. I submitted it to the clerk of courts who could then gave it to the judge that was dealing with the restraining orders that day. I returned back to the courthouse and I walked up expecting them to tell me that it was denied. But instead, she said that I was granted the temporary one and that I needed to take a copy to the police station. They gave me copies to give to my daughter's schools and also gave me a copy for me to keep on myself at all times. They said that I had to come back in about two weeks to ask for a more permanent one. And I was also warned that they would be at court and would be allowed to defend themselves and to try to stop it from happening. I was shocked. I could not believe that I had told my story and not only did someone believe me, but they actually believed my fear. And that was one of the most amazing things about it was that judge knew I was afraid and he knew that I had every reason to be afraid. It was so validating. I couldn't move for the first few minutes. I just stared at the clerk in shock. And she said to me that it was okay. And it was going to be okay. That I could leave and go home and feel just a little bit safer. And I remember getting on the bus and heading back to the shelter and just sitting outside smoking a cigarette and thinking, my God, they are going to read Everything. Every single thing I wrote, they are going to read. And I remembered a time in 2006 where my aunt had gotten a restraining order against my father. I was living with my ex-husband at the time in our apartment and I was summoned to his house. And he forced me to read every gruesome detail that she wrote about the assaults that had happened to her as a child. She also had talked about assaults that had happened more recently. I was so sick to my stomach, and I didn't want to read it, but he made me. And it was about 10 pages long, at least. As I sat outside with mine, sitting in my hands, all I could think about was how many people he was going to have read the complaint that I wrote. My mother, my brothers, my cousins, my aunts, My uncles, my entire family was going to read the things that I wrote, and I did not know if any of them were going to believe those words. The judge may have believed me, but at the time I wanted everyone else to as well. I knew that he was spreading lies about what had really happened, but back then it was important to me for the truth to come out. And even now, I feel silly for thinking that because anyone that believed anything that he said, obviously, was not someone that I needed in my life. So there was two weeks of no contact. When I first got to court that morning, I was absolutely terrified. I could not stop shaking or thinking about anything that was about to happen. I think the scariest part of everything was that I was going to be in the same building as them again for the first time since I left. Except this time, they were going to know that I had not stayed silent and that I had told every secret that I was never supposed to say. I had this pit in the bottom of my stomach that I never thought was going to go away. And then it happened. I saw them. It had been a month now since the last time I had laid eyes on them. And I think everything started to sink in at that moment that everything was different. I thought that I was going to miss them. And I was not missing them. I just wanted to run as fast as I could, but I knew that for my safety and my children's safety, this was the best thing that I needed to do. My advocate met me. And we went over a lot of things. She explained that my father had requested for the hearing to take place in judges' quarters. I wasn't quite sure why, but that was where it happened. We sat at a table with the judge sitting at his desk to the left of me and my parents sitting right in front of me on the other side of the table. And they gave me that look that they had given me so many times before in my life telling me that I needed to behave, and then it became clear as to why they wanted us in judges' chambers. They thought that look was going to intimidate me enough that I would retract the things that I said. Their plan did not work. The judge asked me to tell my side of the story, so I went over all the things that I had written in my original petition. I submitted copies of the threatening emails into evidence I just told my story, and then it was their turn, and all they did was lie. They claimed that the fight that happened in the garage, my father never held my hands behind my back because he was not there, but yet he was blocking the doors for me to leave because he was concerned for my mental well-being. Even the judge picked up on that and asked how both those statements could be true at the same time, and reminded them that they were both under oath. They went on lying about how abusive I was and that I was an addict and all of these things that they had said about me for so many years. I wanted to cry so bad. But the judge said something to them that shocked me. It was the last thing that I had ever expected anyone to say. He asked them, If all those things were true, then why would they want contact with me? And why would they be fighting the restraining order? I was floored. He believed me. And he granted me a one-year restraining order and told me that I could come back in a year and I would be able to extend it further. And then we left the room. The second I walked out of that room, I just fell to the ground and put my head in my hands and just sobbed. And I let out all the emotions that I have been holding in for 26 years. I finally told someone and they believed me and not them. And it wasn't just a friend or an advocate. It was a person in a position of power that finally believed that I was the victim and that I needed to be protected from them. It was just so surreal. I went back and got it extended after that year for another three years. That time was a little bit different because I already knew what was going to happen. So I thought of everything that they were going to say about me, and I brought proof to disprove it. I told the judge that they were going to say that I was bipolar with delusions, and here was proof that that was not true. I said that they were going to tell him that they had kicked me out of the house and this was my revenge and here was proof that that was in fact not true either. I went on and on down my list of everything that I could think of that they would say and showed how it was not true. In the end, my father just yelled. The judge said that if he did not keep his cool he would be put in jail and held in contempt, and he granted me three more years and told my father that if he ever came close to violating it, that he would make sure that he got the longest sentence that was allowed. After we left, my advocate said that she was in awe of how I was able to advocate for myself and how much I had grown in the year that I had been away. She also laughed as we said that my father looked like a soda bottle that was shaken up and about to explode. He was so angry. It wasn't long after that court hearing that I had left the state. I found my piece and I used it to fly as far away as I could. Hearing what that judge said gave me more strength than I ever knew that I had. I spent so much time as a child with nobody ever believing me. And here was a man that not only believed me, but also saw the lies that my parents were saying. I was not crazy. I was not delusional. They were the problem. And I think that made it easier to stay away. And I wish that I could sit here and say that they never violated that restraining order or never even attempted to, and that I just have had this wonderful, peaceful life ever since. But of course, that is not the case. It didn't stop them from doing very much of anything. It just turned into a big problem of did they or didn't they, or which jurisdiction do I report to. It did keep me safe many times, but... They knew how to violate it without actually violating it. But I took the strength that I got that day from the judge and I used it to move away from the area that we were living. And I thought that that was going to be it. Just one move, one time, new place, new faces, and everything was going to be okay. Little did I know that it was going to turn into what is now the 19th state. ...in just 12 years. And I know some people may be thinking... ...oh my gosh, how horrible is that... ...that I don't get to sit still for more than a couple of years. And that's true, in a lot of ways. I don't really have friends in town... ...and I don't know all the side streets in my neighborhood... ...like the one that I grew up in... ...and lived the first 22 years of my life. But I do get to experience everything this country has to offer... I got to live in a place where they called soda soda and I lived in places where they called it pop and I've also lived in places where they called every soda cola. I get to hear the different dialects and different accents that are throughout this entire country. I have driven across it back and forth more than once. I've seen almost all of the national parks. I've seen so many beautiful things while I traveled. And it's like when I move to one place, if we stop to get gas and I see something that just draws me to that place, eventually I would end up moving there at some point. And we start our life over and then we just wait and see if it happens again and we have to pack up and leave. I'm going to be okay. I just know it. And I love that saying where it says you were strong enough to survive the abuse. You will be strong enough to survive the recovery. And I've learned a lot about that throughout the years. I am just a few weeks shy of my 12th year anniversary of my escape. Last year, I did a series on TikTok and I went through day by day for a few days before I had escaped. And I just went step by step through everything that went through on those final days. i had never done that before, and it was just so uplifting and gave me so much hope that my life doesn't always have to be this victim that's just running. I'm a survivor flying away. I'm choosing to move. I don't know what I'm going to do to celebrate my anniversary this year, but it's going to be a good one for sure. And of course, I will bring all of you along for the ride. This life is so precious, and we only get one. I don't want to waste it being upset because mine did not play out the way that I wanted it to, or the way that I had hoped it would, or the way that it should have. I do not want to sit and cry because other people seem to have it easier than I do because We all know that is not true. Nobody has it worse than any other person. I want to live the best life that I can because I was blessed to be able to continue living it. It is a miracle that I survived the things that I did and that I made it out alive. And while people fought very hard to make sure that I did not, I will never let them win. And I will always live a life that is worth living. I am so devastated to sit and think of how many have lost their lives. Either while they were still being trafficked. Or while they attempted to escape. And I wish that I could have saved them all. But all I can do is just continue to live the best life that I can. The trafficking world has stolen so much from me. It stole my children, it stole my innocence as a child, it stole my trust, but it never stole my heart, and it will never steal my soul, and I will never let it change me and turn my heart cold. And I hope that other people that have been through these things that I have been through may be able to have that same perspective someday. Because there is life on the other side, and you can survive and live a wonderful life despite all of the trauma. It is hard, and you have to work at it every single day, but it can happen. In that first year, before I got my restraining order extended, it was so different because I did get to have a whole year where I didn't have to look over my shoulder every moment. But I was homeless and living on the streets. And dealing with a lot of problems with PTSD and just functioning. It was so humbling though. I instantly became a part of a community of people. And everything that I thought I knew about the homeless community changed my mind. When I was on the streets, we were all family. And some people were there because they had lost their jobs. Some women were there because they left an abusive situation. And like me, under a bridge was better than anything. Everyone had a story and all of their stories mattered. And if one of us got food, we shared it. If one of us got clothes, we shared them. And though I stayed homeless for a long time, that never changed. Even when I moved to a different state, it was still like that. And it just showed me the importance of what surviving is. It is not just making it out alive. It is making the best of the life that you were blessed to have. So how do you do that? How do you live on the streets with no roof over your head and everything you own in a bag and still live your best life well you work odd jobs and you make a little bit of money and you buy yourself a coffee as a treat and then your friend walks by so you buy them a coffee because they've been struggling and then in a couple of weeks when you don't have any money and you are hungry and you want a muffin or something to eat they will buy you something to eat You become part of the community that you were never allowed to be a part of before. I was isolated. My parents made sure that I never had any friends, that I wasn't allowed to have friends. They put up pictures in my childhood home that an artist painted from still shots that were taken during sales. That way, I would be too ashamed to have anybody come inside of my home. And how are you supposed to have friends if you can't even bring them into your own house? When you walk into the house that I spent most of my life in, you would walk into a foyer, and there were stairs right in front of you, and to the left, there was a coat closet and a half-bathroom, To the right was the formal living room, and the kitchen was straight ahead. To the right of the kitchen was a formal dining room that connected to the formal living room. There was a little breakfast nook area and a family room to the left that had a fireplace. The door to the basement was right there in the kitchen, and we had sliding glass doors in our family room and also a door that went out back in the kitchen. The night that I had escaped, that I had talked about before, it was that kitchen door that I ran through because it was right directly across from the basement door. Upstairs to the left was my parents' room and then there was a bathroom that was like kind of right in front of you. My little brother's room was on the right. Down the hall was my older brother's room and mine was on the left side, which was the back of the house. I don't even know how big my room was, but it just seemed huge. And it's so crazy because I look at pictures of it online and I just don't feel an emotional connection to that house at all. And I spent most of my life there. The basement has since been torn up, but there was a media room, a pool table room, a bedroom, an office, and a storage room. There was also a bathroom that I used that had a shower stall. And it's kind of weird thinking back because every house that I lived in with my parents, I always had a bathroom that had a shower stall. And I can't figure out if that was something that was done on purpose or just by chance. I can't really see a purpose behind it, but just a weird thing that I'd noticed. So it's like, now, how do I know what a home actually feels like? Because my childhood home that I spent so many years at never felt like a home. And to be quite honest, was not a home. I don't think that term ever existed for me. So how do you make one when you don't even know what one is? That's what I learned the most on the streets, is how to make a home in any place that you are. I know it's cliche to say home is where the heart is, but it is so true. There was a saying among army wives when my husband was in the military That home is where my husband is. Same concept. In the military, you move around so much that your husband is your heart. So that's where your home is. And while I've only lived here for just a few days, it is still my home because my family is here. My dog and my crazy cats are here too. And I am happy. And I feel safe. And to me that is what home is. And I never would have had any of this if it was not for that judge that saw through my parents' lies. It's still a moment that I can close my eyes and just picture their faces when somebody finally saw through all of it. It was the most amazing feeling in the world. And that moment I hang on to each and every time that I feel like I can't go on. And I remember that judge. I remember that room. I remember that table. I remember the chair that I sat in while tears fell from my eyes as I was validated for the very first time. That judge gave me my life. And I will forever be grateful. I will pray for those who did not survive and hold them close to my heart. But me, I'm going to live my life the way that I want to live it, the way that I should have been living it all along. And I'm going to enjoy every single moment. Even if it's being cooped up in a car driving across the country because I have to get my family safe again. All my little detours drive my husband crazy, but the way I see it is, if I am going to have to drive across this country back and forth multiple times, I want to see every single piece of it. And I am going to be thankful that I live to see every day that I get to live. They haven't gotten me down yet, and I don't think that they ever will. Because no matter how broken they had me... I never stayed broken, and I will always shine.